Good morning, everyone. This is Dave Weiner calling in, calling in from the road today in, uh, wow, we're in South Carolina, um, right off Interstate 95. Um, I was going to spend the next, whatever, few days, I was going to spend them in Florida, and I just got so itchy. I sort of planned this whole trip, uh, working on sort of arranging it for I don't know, it seems like a couple of months, and now everything was all set up, and uh, the, the new minivan was packed, and um, uh, and I was all set to go, and didn't have, I have uh, uh, some meetings in, the, in Washington, D.C. Um, on the 6th of July, which is next Wednesday, and so, like, if you do the math, uh, I was at most two days away from D.C. by car, um, and so I sort of figured rather than try to find a place to stay on the July 4th weekend in various places around the southeast uh, that, you know, I'd hang out in Florida, but uh, I get itchy, and I decided, let's go, let's, let's get a, you know, and I'll pace myself, and I'll go slowly, and... Uh, I do some sightseeing, like, for example, today I went for my daily walk in a place that I had never been before, Savannah, Georgia, and uh, um, it is a surprisingly interesting place, and maybe not so surprising, uh, full of history, um, uh, full of history from the uh, Revolutionary War, uh, from the Civil War, lots of really, really old buildings, um, I don't know, uh, kind of an interesting place. It was super hot, uh, even though, like, I took my walk at, like, 8.30 in the morning. I was, like, completely soaked by the time it was over. And I was listening to an audiobook uh, that I had scanned. Um, the book is called The Regulators by Stephen King. And uh, it's the first Stephen King book that I've uh, listened to as an audiobook. And it, it works really well. Um, and mentioning audiobooks, because that's what this blog, this, uh, blog, this podcast is about. Um, although, of course, it is a blog post, too. Um, it's, I'm going to talk a little bit about audiobooks and about a conversation I had with Don Katz. Uh, a conversation would be to put it mildly. It was more like a one-sided lecture, uh, basically from Don Katz, the CEO of Audible, to me, explaining to me how to, how I'd failed him as a customer. Um, and I kept trying to interrupt him and saying, you know, there's something really wrong uh, with a business that is predicated on their customers being wrong. And because that's all the guy was telling me was how I did everything the wrong way. And, um, well, you know, there's a reason why it's, it's a kind of an intuitive thing. Uh, companies that really are excellent companies can't, you just can't get there. You can't get to excellence if you're willing to consider the possibility that your customers are wrong. And I'm the best kind of customer for them. I mean, I poured so much money into that company. Um, and I had a like a love-hate relationship with them. It was always bothered me. It made me really nervous that there was this really sort of, I, I was being locked in. I mean, um, I knew that I was being locked in, that they had some kind of, uh, digital rights management DRM in there and that I could get the stuff onto my iPod through this software that was I thought really awkwardly engineered really poorly designed software 
Um, and, um, and I guess, you know, it mostly for, you know, for the first X months it worked. And, um, you know, what I would do is when I'm traveling, um, I would, you know, stop at a hotel that had an internet connection and, um, I would go shopping on Audible and, uh, and I used far more when I was traveling, I used more than my allotted two bo two books per month. Um, which is fine. I mean, for me, a couple of days worth of intellectual stimulation is easily worth 30, 40 bucks. That's not a problem. I mean, um, you know, that's not much money compared to what it costs to live. I mean, you know, um, it just isn't very, it isn't a big concern for me. I mean, I, I'm happy to spend that kind of money for something that, you know, teaches me something or inspires me or entertains me or even at times just keeps my mind occupied, you know, so that I can space out. Um, and, you know, what I would do is download the book and put it on the iPod and then um, connect the iPod up to the stereo system in my car and uh, play the book or and then take it with me on. I walk every day because I need the exercise and um, and take the book with me on my walk as well. And everything was fine, except I was really nervous because, you know, I'm a computer guy and I understand that I'm doing this like, you know, if I have a problem with one of these computers, then I've got a problem. And, you know, in this day and age, you just don't expect much in the way of service. Now, I don't know whether Audible service is good or not because I've never used it. Um, but I do know that, like, for example, Time Warner, uh, God, it's like, I don't you know, I mean, I had an awful experience with the cable company at the place that I lived at in uh, Florida for the last four months. Uh, repeatedly awful experiences with them. And that's just one of the companies. There are very few companies that are really worth dealing with and that really take your time seriously. That's just the way it is in 2005. We, we really don't place a premium on service. We don't pay for service. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, frankly, I don't pay them audible enough money for the product that I get. For them to be able to provide me with much service, at least my assumption, probably wrong because they they uh, have seemed to have good service. Um, but anyway, I'm off on a tangent. Um, so then the, the the disaster struck. It happened twice. First, it happened with the laptop that uh, it was bound up with Audible. In other words, the one that I had installed their software on. Uh, it got really badly infected with spyware, which is something that happens these days. I mean, it happens a lot. Um, not their fault. Nope, not their fault that I got infected with spyware. Not their fault that I had to switch because the computer became unusable. It was spending all of its time calling back to some spyware location and telling them what I was doing, you know. Totally not their fault, but the fact is that they built a system that depended on that computer working. And then the iPod crapped out. So both of the systems, you know, so I couldn't even listen to the books that I already bought. And, you know, being a blogger, which is, you know, and, and, and a customer, because I pay for this stuff. I wrote about it. Well, apparently they got really upset that I had done this, um, that I had written about my experiences. And um, I was absolutely outraged when I heard this from cats. I mean, he was like accusing me of blogging this. And I go, wow, what planet do you live on? I mean, you know, I blog because I blog and I 
proud to be one and if you can't deal with customers that blog then I think you got a bigger problem because frankly you know I'm not all that unusual anymore number one number two is your people should be blogging you should be blogging because if you were blogging you would know you got a big problem here okay um, you do I know this is to Don Katz you wouldn't listen to me when we were talking you know he kept basically dominated the conversation I wasn't going to yell at, you know to get over you I wasn't gonna get into a shouting match with you so I let you lecture me okay up to a point and then I had to walk away because you just wouldn't let me get a word in edgewise but you do have a problem and the problem is that the users are going to get smart it happened I try to explain this it happened to me in the 80s when I was a CEO of a small software company um, and we copy protected our products which was what we called DRM back in those days we called it copy protection and the idea was that you weren't supposed to copy the software and um, and at first the users accepted this they just thought well this is the way computer software works and um, the we weren't the first to do it um, and we weren't the one that that created this is an acceptable practice uh, that was Lotus. Lotus uh, one two three came out the gate, copy protected, um, and it was the big hit of uh, I guess what was it, 1982, uh, the year after the PC came out. You know, it was one of the seminal. It was the seminal product. Sorry, not one of the seminal products. It was the seminal product of the PC. It was the one that made the PC displace the Apple II, and it was copy protected. And that made it acceptable for all software to be copy protected. And like everybody else at the time, we copy protected it as well. And um, and it went fine at first. And then then there were utilities that came out that basically let people make copies of the of the you know the way the way it worked was is that uh, we would burn a we would and it wasn't burned it was done with software. We would put a bad track on the disk, and the track would be bad in a very specific way. Uh, the operating system couldn't read the track that way. It was not the the formatting wasn't compatible with the operating system. However, our software could read the track, um, and so uh, when the when the operating system tried to copy the disk, it would fail when it got to that track. Um, and so our software on booting would look for that specific track the bad track, the quote-unquote bad track, and would read it and would look, look to see what was inside of there. And if what in, was inside there was what it was expecting to see, it would go ahead and boot. And if it wasn't what it, if it wasn't there or it wasn't didn't contain what we expected, then it would say, I'm sorry, this is an unauthorized copy and we won't run. Um, well, it was no big deal for, uh, you know, if we could write the track, then another software developer could come along and, you know, copy it. You know, or recreate it. It wasn't a big deal. And there was a company called Central Point Software that made a bit, made a utility, and they made a lot of money. They basically learned how to copy every piece of software. Of course, they started off by copying Lotus, and um, basically everybody they they undid everybody's copy protection. And, and we all kind of looked the other way because we knew that we weren't like our current concern. I mean, it's sort of like locks. the The story was this: is that locks. Uh, only keep out honest people. I guess, is that the way, I don't know if that's the way everybody says it, but it's the point, is that, you know, 
if you're dishonest, if you want to break in to my house and I've got a lock on the door, well, the lock isn't going to stop you. You're going to get in. But the lock is there to remind an honest person that you're not supposed to be going in here. And, you know, just in the case there was any question in your mind, you're not supposed to go here. And, uh, and so the theory was is that the central point utility would be used by honest people and they would know that they're just making the copy for archival purposes and they wouldn't make the copy for their friends. And actually, it worked pretty well. I mean, um, I can tell you, I'll just get to the point why I know that the copy protection wasn't really keeping us in business. Um, anyway, so what happened was, so once they could see that, that, that Central Point could write a utility that copied our software, and they all bought that software, they go say, well, why did we have to go through that silly little dance, okay? I mean, then, clearly, the software doesn't have to work this way. They chose to make it work this way. And that's, there was, it was like wildfire. This idea spread through the user community. And we were sort of like deer caught in the headlights. Like we didn't know what to do. And so we didn't do anything. And we just, I'd get, um, this was before email was really common. And I'd get letters from people. And they would write me letters. And they would say, I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm, it's not my problem that people are copying your software. I don't copy it illegally. I want to make a backup copy of the software because I want to be protected in case I have a disk failure. And of course, being a computer professional, um, you know, I understood. Of course you want to have a backup copy. Frankly, I want you to have a backup copy because I, if you use my software and, you know, for important work, uh, what good is it going to be for you if that software all of a sudden you can't run it? If that disk that we put the software on, if that disk fails, then someday you're going to try to boot up my software. It's not going to work and you're going to be in deep trouble because you've become dependent on my software. I knew that. I understood that and you know it's like a doctor you know it's like a doctor you know it's like you you know it's okay it's not like smoking exactly but it's not a smart thing to do you know it's uh I mean you know having a not having a backup of a piece of software it's you know you could probably get another copy of the piece of software in a reasonable time frame but why should you have to why should a company that values you uh, as a customer make you go through that and that was a valid question. And then they started sending me disks that were, they, what they would do is they would, you know, they would cut up the disk and send it back to me. And as president of a company, you know, you can only get a f so many of those before they get your attention. This is people defacing your product that they paid, you know, in my case, $195 for this disk. And they're cutting it up and sending it back to me. I mean, that's an important demo. So, in a matter of, I think it was weeks, certainly not many, many weeks, um, the copy protection came off Lotus. Lotus made an announcement that they were not going to copy protect, and so everybody else took it off. And um, But that left us with a, a bad relationship with the users. You know, the users kind of never forgave us for that. It never, They never forgot that we treated them so badly. Uh, and... Uh, and it didn't turn out to matter. I can prove it because um, this was like 1987 or so, maybe. Yeah, it was 86, 87. Well, it was before that, actually. Let's say it was 83 to 87, somewhere in there. Uh, I know we started copy protecting in 84, right? And um, 
so so that you know so that gives you the time frame well all right so the copy protection came off in 87 and you know how much growth has there been in the software business since then i mean how big was all the software industry probably the sales of the entire software industry for the entire year probably didn't equal microsoft's sales for one month okay that's how much growth there's been probably that's even an understatement it's probably even much more than that there's just been huge huge growth in the software industry and it all has happened without copy protection without drm that's not to say there isn't piracy there's not to say that there isn't lots of piracy but copy protection is going there's it's also true that when you put copy protection on or drm i don't care what you call it eventually the only way that works is if the users are dumb. And that's working right now with iPod users. You've got a whole new class of people coming in. You know, a lot of these people, believe it or not, it's hard for us old timers to appreciate this, but a lot of these people, um, you know, have never used a word processor, right? I mean, they've done all their editing in the browser. You know, they use Hotmail or, um, you know, or Gmail or... Um, Yahoo Mail or you know these browser based stuff they do their writing in the browser um, they don't know about productivity applications the way people that learned how to use computers in the 80s and early 90s learned about productivity applications I, w I don't know the numbers but my guess would be there are a lot more people who don't really use word processors and don't know about copy protection so DRM, this is their first experience with DRM. Maybe games, they understand that games come copy-protected, too, in some fashion. Although, boy, I'm about to give up on that one. Um, you know, I, I play some games, but I can't get them to work because of copy-protection. Same thing happened to me with the iPod. And, and I'm not stupid, and I've been through copy-protection. I know it from both sides, both the vendor side and the user side, and I know where this is going. And I got burned. Um, I have another friend, Tori Ryan, um, who was non-technical, just a, you know, she's a user and, you know, very bright person, um, told me the story. She bought $2,000 worth of music on her iPod, um, and 2000, she's not, she's not rich. She's not, I mean, that, that's, $2,000 is a lot of money to me, and it's a lot of, really a lot of money to her, um, and, uh, she did something wrong somehow and doesn't really know what it was, answered, clicked OK on some dialogue that she should have clicked Cancel to, and all of a sudden the music's just gone. And I thought to myself, well, there's a parable for our times. You know, that's $2,000 worth of money for some bits, and she can't get them back. There's nobody to call. If they call, she calls them. Okay, Audible may have great customer support for a guy like me, but does Apple have great customer support for somebody like Tori? If Tori calls them up, they're going to say, well, you know, we think you stole the music. She didn't call them. She doesn't have the music. So how many places is that happening? And how many people can afford to lose $2,000 worth of music? I didn't lose $2,000 worth of audiobooks. They're still sitting on the iPod. They're still sitting on that laptop. Theoretically, someday I may be able to get them off, but I don't have the time or the patience. And I've been humiliated, and I don't even want to look at it. I mean, that was what I, if, if Don uh, Katz had been really listening, there were a couple of things he would have heard. One is, yeah, maybe I can afford the time, and my time is valuable. Maybe I can afford the time, but maybe I find it a little humiliating to be sitting there being 
walked through the process of getting my goddamn books back when I would have been perfectly capable of backing them up myself if you would just let me do it. Just as, like, I could have said to Tori, Tori, you know, you really ought to be backing up the music, but I know she can't back it up, right? Not with the level, not with the tools that they give her, and not with the level of technical skill, and not with the patience that I have, you know, to do Apple's customer support for them, you know? Um... So, so what happened? I switched. I switched to an Arcos. I still listen to audiobooks. I put much more time now into uh, into getting them ready for me to listen to. I go to Barnes and Noble um, and I buy the books in CD form, so that number one, I know I have a backup. Okay, can't lose that, you know, or I could, but I'm not going to. And um, and I kind of like having the CDs too because that means I can also listen to them on my CD player in my car. I kind of like that uh, without having to like fuss around with it. It's kind of cool. And I I know that I can do that. Of course, somebody could say, well, you know, Audible lets you do that. Yeah, I saw that somewhere in some menu, but. Um, you know, I don't want to use their proprietary app. What I want to do is I want to download the things as MP3s, put them on my hard drive, and um, and copy them over to whatever device I want to copy them over to to listen to them, whether it be an iPod or an Arcos or uh, one of these, you know, $49 MP3 players you can buy at Target or whatever I want or whatever I have next year, okay? Um... And I and I I want that, and you know the guy laughs at me when I say that. Well, you want that so you can pirate it. Well, no, that isn't actually why I want it. I want it because I uh, because I'm your customer. <laughs> I just want it. I mean, I want it so I can have a backup copy, and I want it so that I can listen to this the uh, book where I want to listen to it and when I want to listen to it, and I want to not have to lose the book just because I had a hardware glitch. So what I do is I scan it in. I use uh, uh, a program called AC Extractor, which I paid for, of course. Uh, I don't have to pay for it now because uh, the feature of ripping the uh, CDs is built into the uh, media player um, that Microsoft uh, ships, and it's a good thing that they do because uh, the DRM on the AC Extractor went crazy on me, and now it says that I didn't pay for it. DRM man, it's like, yeah, well, I did pay for it, and you know, maybe I'd pay for it again um, if you. First of all, if you told me I was going to have to pay for it again, I might have said, okay, fine, it's worth you know whatever, twenty nine dollars a year or whatever. I don't think that's actually what happened. I think it lost its file, and then it's like having to wade through the whole menu structure and all the. Every one of them is different. Every one of these companies does their commerce in a different way, and I just don't have the patience for it. Thank God Microsoft did it, okay? And I'm the last guy to say that. I believe in independent software developers. I believe in paying for the software that I use. I am an independent software developer myself, so I really have respect for the, the business, you know. But enough is enough already. I mean, how much effort do I have to go through in order to make up for your lack of trust in me. Um, and 
that's ultimately what happens to companies that do DRM. And when the shit hits the fan for these companies, there's not much goodwill left with the users. And that, that Don Katz yelled at me, and that Don Katz thinks that it's wrong for his users to have blogs, and it's wrong for his users to write about uh, their experience. You know, using their stuff with blogs will come on. Of course it's right, because I want to tell everybody else that might be using your service that this is a problem for you, for them. And if you used a blog and you were really cared about your customers and your users, you'd want to know that they had this problem. And Don, let me just say this. Instead of, if, if instead of yelling at me, you had listened to me and had, because I was, I told you, and I, and, I, and I had it, and to some extent I still do, have a certain affection for Audible. Because it's like, because while you treated me like an idiot and like a criminal and you didn't trust me, you did provide me with intellectual value, which I appreciate, and you did throw a few goodies out there. Every once in a while there was something that you provided that you didn't have to provide that you provided for free. Uh, like, uh, um... Uh, the debates, that was what it was, the presidential debates. You put that out and didn't charge for that. That didn't come, from, that was a goodwill gesture and, I, and, and it was appreciated. But the thing you needed to know is that had you just listened and said, well, Dave, would you be willing to try it again? Had you said that, I would have said yes. Instead, what you did was you yelled at me and I, you alienated me and left me feelings like, well, Maybe I'll be a customer of Audible again, but not while that guy's CEO. <laughs> so, in any case, the big picture. So what, what got me going on this this morning was I realized that there may be more to this than initially I thought. And then I read an article that's going to be in tomorrow's New York Times written by Randall E. Strauss about podcasting and about Apple and about the um, the interesting sort of question of um, well, first of all, I think it's reasonable to assume that when Apple sends me to Audible, which by the way isn't how I got to Audible, I don't like iTunes. I mean, iTunes to me is a clunky, big, slow, screwed up piece of software. I don't like it. I never have. It's slow. It slows me down, um, and it's my prison. It's the thing that makes the iPod such a really piece of shit. You know, I'm sorry, but the iPod is a prison for me as a user. I want to be able to to just deal with it with the file system. I mean, I want. I don't like the prison aspects of it, and I don't use it. I mean, I hate that it launches. It insists on insinuating itself into almost every single transaction it could conceivably put itself in the middle of. And I swear it never asks me for permission. People say, well, you know, it does ask you, but you just don't know when you're telling it, giving it permission to go ahead and open your music files. I swear I have told it, it you know, I've told media player to go ahead you can have all my mp3s and yet it still launches itunes whenever i open so i don't like itunes and that's not how i found out about it but found out about audible and that's but it seems reasonable okay to assume that uh when the user 
goes to Audible through iTunes to purchase something, that Apple gets a cut on that. I would assume that they do. If they don't, boy, they really are being generous. So let's assume that they do make some money off of that deal. And then when Apple's, this is something Strauss noticed, and I noticed it as well, is that when Apple sends you to go get a podcast, well, I can tell you, they're not, if they send you to get Morning Coffee Notes, which is the podcast you're listening to right now, um, I can promise you they're not getting any money. Not for me. And if they're getting money, I don't know where they're getting it from. Which, by the way, there's some question about Apple, you know, repurposing our content. And if it turns out that they're doing that, and it's what's really scary is if they're repurposing it and putting ads on it, that would be really bad. And I think we we would go picket Apple, and we would, I would sue them if they did that. I mean, I, I do a non-commercial podcast, and if, if they're like even thinking about doing anything like that, uh, that's going to be a real big problem here, and uh, a real big problem. So I would much rather, but you know, I've been getting a lot of listenership now. I've been hearing from people. I don't necessarily see it all in my logs, but uh, which indicates that people who believe that they're caching this stuff may really have a point. Uh, but I am hearing from people I haven't heard of from in a long time, so they're finding my podcast. Um, through Apple, which, you know, I do appreciate that. I like it. But I can tell you they're not making any money off this. And so when they send people to go get morning coffee notes, instead of going to Audible, where they presumably do make money, that there's something really strange going on here. Apple's taking a money-making business and turning it into a non-making, money-making business. Um, why does Apple do that? Strauss asks. And... And then he takes it someplace. Well, I mean, and, and he answers it, and I think his answer is right, is that Apple looked at the situation and said, wow, this podcasting thing is a juggernaut, and we are either going to grow with it or we're going to be against it. And it'd be better, this is what I think that they probably looked at when they looked at it, and they said, well, it'd be better if we were seen as the innovator here rather than the defender. Uh, gives us let us control what's going on in the podcasting space, to use a Steve Gilmore term. Um, let us control that, and uh, rather than and have us be opposed to it, um, which I think sounds about right. If if I were in Apple's shoes, I wouldn't want podcasting to have grown too much more without being identified with it, because it was, believe me, it was designed for Apple to play this role. No surprise to me that they stepped in. I was surprised that it took them as long as it did. Um, and I'm also not surprised that it resonated as strongly as it did. And I don't consider it a threat. Um, Strauss seems to think that I should think that it's a threat. And he talks about podcasting pioneers getting their hackles up. And that's got to be me. I mean, I don't know that, you know, I mean, it, you know, he's talking about me. But, but, uh. But no, I don't think that's the way it's going to turn out. I don't believe that it's turning out that way. I think it's the other way. I think it's remarkable that Audible stock hasn't taken a hit for this because, and this is the lesson, this is why Don Katz was right to be angry. Although not necessarily smart to be angry, okay? Because... I can tell you from the point of view of this user that if there had not been DRM on Audible stuff, 
I would have been a lot less motivated, number one, to create a, a podcast, number, because, frankly, nobody would have time to listen to my podcasts, because they'd be so busy uh, listening to the commercial books that they would be buying from Audible, that there just would have been this enormous barrier to entry there that it would have been impossible to get over. I mean, in other words, there's a boom that didn't happen for Audible, okay? And I don't claim that they could have gotten there because they have to deal with the book publishers, right? So, you know, I'm very sort of sanguine on the fact that none of this shit is Audible's fault. The only thing that's Audible's fault is that the CEO was a dickhead to me. And even that I can overlook. I mean, who cares, frankly? I just think it's curious. But it's not the end of the world. It's interesting, though. Why? Well, you know, just because it is. But... He's right to be concerned because, well, first of all, there wouldn't be a podcasting. Number one, I wouldn't be, have been doing it. Number two, is I certainly wouldn't have been listening to podcasts. I wouldn't. Why would I listen to IT conversations if I could get all the books that I wanted? You know, and like I said, I don't mind paying. I'm happy to pay. If I put eleven hours into listening to a book and it cost me forty dollars. Hey, that's a small price to pay. I'm happy. I like paying for things that, that that make me happy. Okay? And I'd argue that I'm your customer. I don't care what the other people... This is, by by the way, this is how it shook down in... Um, shook out in the PC software businesses. Once we didn't have copy protection, we knew that basically, okay, there's a lot of piracy going on, right? Maybe piracy isn't the right word. There's a lot of copying going on. A lot of people are taking the software and not paying for it, right? So what we did was we learned that we had customers, and then we had people who were not customers, people who were just taking the product. So who do you think we made features for? We made features. We, we made enhancements. We built features, and we built products for the people who pay, period. Because I had no interest in building demand amongst people who didn't pay. I had no incentive to do it. I mean, I was running a business. I did need to make payroll. Had no choice. I had to try to make a profit at least. You know, in some years I made a lot of money and not a lot of profit in the software business. And I was always trying to make money. I mean, that's what we were about, right? Making money. That's what. That's why you run a business. That's why when you raise investment capital, you're raising it in the expectation that you're going to make money for the people who are putting the money in. So you're always looking for a way to make the money, right? Uh, so you make the products for the people who pay, and so, and and if and 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 I think the users knew that. I think the ones that paid knew that that they, by paying, were making sure that we paid attention to their interests, and that meant that you needed to have a conversation with the users. They needed to feel like they were involved with you, because if you didn't have that, then why the hell should they pay? I mean, you know that, like you know, because then then you're like rubbing their nose and you're saying, well, we're going to make you pay because you're an honest person. Right? You're going to pay because you're honest. And you know what? There are a lot of honest people out there. I happen to be one of them. Okay? Um, I pay for what I use. And, uh, um, but you're going to make me pay and you're not going to listen to me? Well, that's a little ridiculous. Okay? <laughs> then I would just stop using your product, basically. So the two things go hand in hand. That's why the blogging part is very important to being in business and and especially when you're selling ones and zeros, especially when you're selling downloads. Because ultimately, the copy protection is coming off. The DRM is coming off. It's going that way, 
right? I know that the software companies and Hollywood and all these guys are investing really, really heavily in DRM. But along comes podcasting, and there's no DRM, and it's a raging thing, and everybody loves it. Do you think they're going to begin to wonder why they don't get the DRM crap on the podcasts and they do get it on the Audible books? I don't think the people are that stupid. I think they're going to really, it's going to be, well, wait a minute. Well, how come I can back up my podcasts, but I can't back up my Audible stuff? And I think our Audible friends are going to deal with this a lot sooner than they think they're going to be dealing with it. I think the users are in the process of getting a lot smarter. And I think that Apple just did something, okay, that is going to accelerate that process. The question is, did they know they were doing it? Doesn't matter. It was happening anyway. But podcasting was a response to the DRM to the extent that the DRM is just gearing up and just getting started. Nah, it's not just gearing up and just getting started. It's in its twilight. It's over. You have to compete the same way. The newspapers, you know, and the pundits have to compete. You know, the the opinion leaders, the news gatherers, the you know, it's like the tech news guys had to compete with the early bloggers, right? And guess what? Bloggers were quite competitive. We knew a lot about the technology, and we didn't mind sharing it. We didn't have their conflicts of interest. So you get the good data from the bloggers, and all of a sudden the tech press really doesn't have a hat to wear anymore. They don't have a job. They're out of a job, and that's happening everywhere in journalism. That's the crisis in journalism. People are doing it for themselves. Well, that's what podcasting is. What do you think? You think podcasting is all that different? It's not any different. Same thing. When you come down to it, book authors don't make all that much money, just like musicians don't make all that much money. So, you know, when you say, you know, how are you going to pay for, how are you going to pay the musicians? How are you going to pay the book authors? Well, if they're not making money, okay, then you're not paying them. That's one of Don Katz's arguments. He says, I used to be a writer. I'd like to get paid. Well, are you paying them, Don? And if so, how much are you paying them? Maybe they could make just as much money, or maybe even make more money, by actually not making their users' lives utterly miserable because ultimately they're going to stop buying that stuff. They're just going to stop buying it. You know, Don thinks that, that basically he can say, well, Dave, you're like not a customer of ours. Well, Don, I think I am your customer. I think I am like your early adopter, early, early adopter. I'm your leading edge. I'm your canary in the coal mine, Don. I'm your worst nightmare. I'm the user that's too smart to go. I'm too smart. I know too much. And I know you don't have to put the DRM on that stuff. And I know that I can go down to Barnes & Noble and I can buy the CDs and I can scan them myself. And if I don't mind putting the time in, and I know that I'm never going to lose them. And if I want to go back and refer to something I listened to a year ago, I don't have to worry about if I can keep a backup on the huge hard drive that I, you know, hard drives are cheap now. So... Things are changing really rapidly, and I don't think you can count on, well, I guess my point really is to Randall Strauss, is that you came like 90% of the way there, you were doing just great, and then you, you walked right into the same trap that New York Times reporters always walk into, which is uh, 
well, don't worry, we're going to put the genie back in the bottle because advertising's coming and DRM's coming and all that crap. Well, I don't know. Anyway, it's 39 minutes and 52 seconds, so that's got to tell you something. <laughs> I got to be just, um, I got to be almost done here, basically, because we're at now the 40 minute mark. Um, I still have a long list of things that I want to talk about that I have to, like, go through from the last, you know, I've had a podcasting hiatus. I want to tell you the story. Uh, Adam Curry gave a really gracious speech um, at Gnome Dex. I thought it was really nice. Uh, explained how, you know, podcasting, what he calls the, um, uh, the chocolate and the peanut butter, I sort of call it Martin and Lewis. Uh, there's the, you know, there's sort of the smooth, you know, uh, Hollywood sort of thing. And then there's the, you know, uh, I'm like Jerry, I don't know if I'm like Jerry Lewis. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> Who knows? Certainly not as pretty as Adam is, that's for sure. But I do appreciate what he said. And I want to tell the story of Adam as a programmer. Um, I have done it before, but. It, it bears repeating. We're, we're being listened to by a lot more people these days. Uh, I totally have to do a podcast about the OPML editor, and uh, and I want to talk about uh, uh, subscription synchronization, believe it or not. It's a, an impediment to growth and a, and a big deal, and, uh, um, and with RSS growing the way it's growing, um, like a goddamn weed in every direction possible, Nobody wants to see any impediments to growth, and uh, and so we're actually doing some work about that and, uh, with uh, with some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, people that are involved with that. So, um, but that's going to have to wait to another podcast because forty minutes is about my limit, and I'm starting to get hungry. And anyway, so this is morning coffee notes, and today is July second, two thousand and five, uh, and the URL. Uh, for morning coffee notes, uh, there's like, I think this is like number 101, somebody was telling me the last one was number 100, I, not that I've been counting or anything, and uh, there's a whole bunch of them in there at www.morningcoffeenotes.com, and my weblog, which I've been writing since 1997, uh, the longest, I like to say the longest running weblog on the internet, which I believe it is, um, is at www.scripting.com, and uh, I guess that's about it. Uh, probably going to do another one. I'm on the road now, just coming to you from uh, uh, southern South Carolina, and uh, next one's going to come to you from southern North Carolina. I'm working my way towards Washington, D.C., and uh, uh, we're going to be in New York City, and then Boston, and then um, uh, Maine, and uh the Maritime Provinces, and going to work our, and then we're going to do an OPML meetup in New York, I think, at the offices of Ritchie Capital, and that's going to be the week of uh, July 12th. Uh, watch script, scripting news for uh, an announcement of the exact location and time. Uh, and uh, So anyway, so that's about it for today. Um, hope you're all doing great, and uh, talk to you again real soon, okay? This is Dave Weiner. Take care. Bye.